Well, I think we'll go ahead and, in the interest of time and get started. Thank you all for coming out for the first read aloud here at Wexner this fall season. And um, we have three wonderful readers on our program today, Nancy Courtney from University Libraries, and Mary Clee and Jim Pesci from the Wexner Center. So relax, there's refreshments if you'd like anything, and um, enjoy the program. Thanks for coming out. <coughs> I'm going to be reading um, a selection from a book by Calvin Trillin that's called Messages from My Father. It's a memoir of his father. Calvin Trillin is an American humorist. He was a staff writer for The New Yorker and also wrote a lot of books that are quite funny. Um, one particular is called Alice Let's Eat and there's Travels with Alice. Alice was his wife and he introduced her into a lot of his writings. And I will tell you, um, because those books are even more referringly funny <laughs> than this is, um, he has a passage in Alice Let's Eat that's um, when they're traveling through Europe and they keep seeing these signs that say, um, uh, uh-oh, now I forgot, no, Toro Piscina, Toro Piscina, which basically means bull in the swimming pool. And it turns out that's an event of some sort in Spain, so you'll have to read the book to find out exactly how you accomplish the bull in the swimming pool part. But yeah, <laughs> but he's very funny. Um, one of the reasons I picked Calvin Trillin is because in this book, uh, which is about his father, I said Calvin himself is from Kansas City, although he spent most of his life in New York City. And um, his father, however, was from St. Joseph, Missouri, which is my hometown, and I got very excited because there's not very many well-known people from my hometown, so you don't often find it mentioned in books. So the parts that I'm going to read have a lot to do with um, where his father came from, uh, particularly in chapter one, and then I'm going to skip a little ahead so you hear the end of the story that's related in here. Okay. The man was stubborn. Take the coffee incident. This happened after I was living away from home, working as a reporter in the South. I was back in Kansas City for a visit, and my father and mother and I were sitting at the kitchen table. My mother had just made coffee. After pouring a cup for me, she asked if I wanted some milk in it. I don't use milk, I said. Well, I'll tell you one thing, my father said. If you were blindfolded, you couldn't tell if there was milk in it or not. As it happened, my father had never tasted coffee in his life. Was he a Mormon? No, he was not a Mormon. A health nut? No, the only nutritional theory I can remember his propounding was that you couldn't gain more weight from eating something than the food itself weighed. So devouring a one-pound box of intensely rich chocolate candy couldn't put on more than one pound. It stands to reason, was how he usually introduced that theory, among others. Was he someone who had a rare allergy to coffee beans or caffeine? No, he thought of allergies as the sort of affliction that cropped up among my mother's relatives, who apparently constructed elaborate defenses against illnesses real and imagined, and were described around our house as nervous. He didn't drink coffee because at some point in his childhood, he had sworn that he never would. My father had sworn off any number of things. As a young man, he smoked for a few years and then swore off cigarettes. He swore off liquor before he was old enough to taste any, supposedly because of his disgust at the smell of stale beer in the taverns where he sold newspapers as a boy. As far as I can remember, he never gave any specific reason for swearing off coffee. It may be that coffee just got caught up in the boyhood oath against liquor, tossed in because it was also something grown-ups drank. I think he must also have sworn off swearing. If you ran him out of patience, his strongest expression was, for crying out loud. I sometimes imagine my father as swearing off things just to keep in practice. The sort of person who looks at himself in the mirror after shaving one day and for no particular reason says to the image he sees, you have hit your last bucket of golf balls. 
or no more popcorn for you, young fella. The act of swearing off, in other words, seemed to overwhelm whatever had triggered it. It's possible, I suppose, that over the years my father could have forgotten why he struck something off the rolls. In his case, though, forgetting what had been behind some absolute prohibition would not have been an argument for ending it. If he swore off something, it stayed sworn off. He had no need to offer explanations for the ban because it applied to him alone. He didn't harangue people about the wickedness of demon rum. I have no reason to believe that he thought it was wicked. He had nothing against anyone else's drinking coffee, including me. He wasn't questioning my ability to tell the difference between black coffee and coffee with milk as a way of telling me that coffee wasn't worth drinking. He spoke in a perfectly agreeable tone, as if he were passing on some interesting fact about coffee that he had just read in the Kansas City Star. I also spoke in a perfectly agreeable tone. I said, does it occur to you that as someone who has never tasted coffee, with or without milk, you may not be a great authority on this subject? I don't care what you say, my father said, using an opening phrase he often employed, even if you hadn't said anything. Blindfolded, you wouldn't know if there was milk in it or not. This is stubborn. My mother's view was that my father's stubbornness was perfectly understandable if you considered the family he came from. In my mother's conversations about relatives, just about everyone was permanently assigned one characteristic, usually a less than noble characteristic, like cheapness or slovenliness or a tendency to spoil children, that could be illustrated in one phrase. If I had inquired while I sipped my coffee about a relative I'll call Doris, my mother's reply would have begun, no matter what milestones had occurred in Doris's life since my previous visit to Kansas City, no matter what acts of kindness or charity Doris had performed, you know Doris, sink full of dirty dishes. Whatever their individual characteristics, my father's relatives had been assigned the group characteristic of stubbornness. When the subject of the St. Joe people came up, my father had grown up in St. Joseph, Missouri, about 50 miles north of Kansas City, and when I was a child, a lot of his relatives still lived there. My mother often summed up her feeling with one forcefully expressed word, mules. My mother accepted without question the notion that such characteristics as stubbornness run in families. In her mind, I think, it was partly a matter of what would now be called genetic predisposition. When I displayed behavior that she considered obstinate, this happened with some regularity. She would tell me that I took after my father's family, the St. Joe people. I was not troubled by this. There seemed to be only two alternatives, and what little boy wants to take after people who are nervous? When I got angry with my parents as a child, I stomped up to my room and remained there, silently smoldering, for periods that reflected impressive stubbornness. Or so I thought until I read many decades later about a young man in Thailand who denied a, motor a motorcycle by his parents, went to his room to sulk, and was still there 22 years later. My mother also seemed to believe that the stubbornness of my father's family was in effect cultural. Some tribes in New Guinea put rings in their noses. The St. Joe people practiced pig-headedness. She was perfectly willing to admit that her own mother's family had customs that encouraged nervousness. She nodded in confirmation when my father demonstrated the variety of their nervous gestures a medley of ticks and snorts that sounded like something out of a Danny Kay movie. It was she, as often as my father, who reminded us that some of her cousins drank a glass of warm water before retiring to settle their stomachs. I suppose I absorbed some of this belief in family characteristics, because when I found myself trying to figure out how my father's family became involved in the unlikely journey that took them to St. Joe in the first place, stubbornness was the first explanation I thought of. There was a lot about my father that was strictly Midwestern, or Western Missouri. He spoke with an accent that would be familiar to anyone who remembers the speeches of Harry S. Truman. By his description, a golf drive that disappeared in the clouds or a towering home run that cleared the fence at Rupert Stadium was a hit all the way to Clay County. 
a woman approaching middle age with no spring chicken. A diminutive person weighed 75 pounds soaking wet with his boots on. It was from him that I picked up the not altogether elegant Midwestern phrase, I haven't had so much fun since the hogs ate my little sister. His childhood reminiscences were of St. Joe around the time of the Great War. The one that stuck in my mind was that he had dislocated his shoulder jumping off a barn that once belonged to Jesse James, perhaps the best known resident that St. Joseph, Missouri has ever had. But my father had actually been brought to St. Joe at the age of two in around 1909. His family, then known as Trilinsky, was from a place that was always described as near Kiev. I've sometimes said that a child growing up in Kansas City, unfamiliar with the world of the shuttle, could get the impression that people who came from near Kiev had lived in the suburbs, except that it would have had to have been an extremely poor suburb, like one of those sorry, badly used farm towns which Midwestern cities sometimes envelop as they expand. I never heard the name of the place mentioned. I knew nothing of what life had been like near Kiev or how the decision had been made to leave for a strange country several thousand miles away. It wasn't a secret. The people who knew, my grandparents' generation, simply didn't talk about it to me, maybe because I didn't ask. My father, of course, had virtually no memories of the old country to talk about. I asked him once if he remembered anything at all about Russia, that part of the world was referred to in my family as Russia, not the Ukraine. And he said that he had a vague memory of getting his foot stuck in the mud. About all I knew of how my father's family got to St. Joe was that they went there directly from Galveston, Texas, where the boat from the old country had landed. When I was a child, I didn't realize there was anything out of the ordinary in getting on a boat in darkest Europe, getting off in Galveston, Texas, and going straight from there to St. Joseph, Missouri. Only later did it occur to me that what I had learned in school about the great wave of immigration from southern and eastern Europe at the turn of the century said nothing at all about the route my family had taken, from suburban Kiev to St. Joseph, Missouri, the home of the Pony Express, and of course, Jesse James. Ellis Island was mentioned, the Statue of Liberty was mentioned, the Lower East Side was mentioned, there was not a word about Galveston, Texas. How did this family, a family indistinguishable from thousands of other poor Eastern European Jewish families saying their farewells to the Tsar, a family that could have been expected to fetch up on, say, Delancey Street, land in Galveston? Could it have been stubbornness? According to one of the theories I came up with, my grandfather and his brother-in-law, my uncle Benny Danovsky, were talking to a friend of theirs one day in the suburbs of Kiev about where you land when you go to America. I knew that my grandfather and Uncle Benny went to America first, followed a couple of years later by my grandmother and my father and his older sister. In the conversation, I imagined the only two places any of the participants had ever heard of in America were New York and Texas. The friend said that when you, were to, when you went to America, you landed in New York. My grandfather shook his head. No, he said, Texas. By the time they all actually left for the New World, my grandfather knew that the place you landed when you went to America was indeed New York, but he was willing to travel a couple of thousand miles out of his way in steerage rather than admit that he'd been wrong. Mules. It seems to me that upbringings have themes. The parents set the theme either explicitly or implicitly, and the children pick it up, sometimes accurately and sometimes not so accurately. When you hear people talking about their childhoods, you can often detect a theme. The theme may be, our family has a distinguished heritage that you must live up to, or we are suffering because your father deserted us, or no matter what happens, we are fortunate to be together in this lovely corner of the earth, or there are simply too, many damn, too damn many of us to make this thing work. Sometimes there is more than one theme. It's possible, for instance, for an upbringing to reflect at the same time, we are suffering because your father deserted us, and there are simply too damn many of us to make this thing work. When I was a child, I was under the impression that one of the themes of my upbringing was one of the grand American themes. We have worked hard so that you can have the opportunities we didn't have. 
It's a grand theme, partly because in its purest form, it requires a suppression of ego. It requires people to think of their lives as taking meaning largely from being a transition to other people's lives, their children's. Thinking back on it, though, I realized that I might have misread the signal slightly. I think what was actually being presented was the immigrant subsection of that theme. We have worked hard so that you can have the opportunity to be a real American. Our immediate family would not have struck anybody as foreigners. The fact that my father had been born in the Ukraine seemed almost a technicality. My parents had Midwestern accents, even though they both happened to be fluent in Yiddish. We didn't live in an immigrant neighborhood. I suspect that a lot of the people I went to school with had grandparents who lived on the farm or in the small towns of eastern Kansas or western Missouri. But the old country, untalked about, basically unexperienced by anyone in our immediate family, was a constant in our lives. My mother was born in Kansas City, but her parents were immigrants. Her father, Pop, had one of those bone-chilling immigration stories often heard among people of that generation. Having, according to his account, evaded conscription by two or three different armies, he sailed to America as a teenager, scheduled to be met at the boat by a half-brother. The half-brother wasn't there. Pop looked around for him, but couldn't find him. He never found him. He never found anybody else he was related to. Although because his name was Weitzman, he sometimes, re he sometimes referred to the founding president of the state of Israel as my cousin, Chaim. I associated St. Joseph, where we showed up regularly on Sunday excursions to visit my father's family, not with the Pony Express or Jesse James, but with immigrants who lived in the back of tiny grocery stores and responded to our arrival by running to the shelves for candy to press on Suki and me. These were my father's aunts and uncles. I could never keep them straight except for Uncle Benny Danovsky, whom I remember as having a sort of magical connection with children. One of my daughters met a room full of my St. Joseph relatives when she was maybe 18 months old, and after one look at Uncle Benny, a funny-looking little man then in his 80s, she walked right over and crawled up into his lap. Suki and I called one of our great uncles Pruneface after a scary-looking character in Dick Tracy, and for years I assumed Pruneface was Uncle Shrolik. That sounded like the sort of name a Pruneface lookalike would have, Shrolik. Shrolik, Suki informed me long after I had grown up and moved away from home, was another name for Uncle Earl, who didn't resemble a Dick Tracy character at all. My father's mother, who remained in St. Joe during part of my childhood, struck me as the most impenetrably foreign relative of, as, of all. Virtually everybody one generation older than my parents on both sides of my family spoke English with a heavy accent. By chance, the only other old person I saw regularly when I was about five also had an accent. The grandmother of the Doty kids, who are our best friends in the neighborhood, was a Norwegian-American from Nebraska. I remember being astonished in first grade when I stopped on the way home from school for some milk and cookies at David Miller's house. His grandmother had gray hair and a grandmotherly air, but she spoke the way David and I spoke. It had somehow escaped me that there were elderly people who could speak regular English. I eventually found out how the St. Joe people got to St. Joe. This discovery came after I was grown and married. Alice and I were on vacation in the Caribbean. Someone I had met in the South, Eli Evans, had sent me a copy of a book called The Provincials, his book on Southern Jews and I was reading it on the beach. I had reached a passage on the tense relations at the turn of the century between German Jews in New York, many of whom had become established respectable business people, and the horde of impoverished Eastern European immigrants pouring into the Lower East Side. It said, quote, the silk hat banker Jacob Schiff, concerned about the conditions on the East Side of New York and embarrassed by the image it created for New York's German Jews, pledged half a million dollars in 1906 to the Galveston Project, which helped direct more than 10,000 Eastern European immigrants through Galveston, unquote. In order to disperse the immigrants, Evans explained, arrangements were made for jobs in various parts of the South and Lower Midwest. It all made sense. My family had, in fact, gone to St. Joe specifically to work in a cabinet factory run by a German-Jewish family. 
a line of work soon abandoned for storekeeping by just about everyone except for my uncle Benny Danovsky, who apparently rather liked making cabinets. The Trelinskys and the Danovskys were obviously Galveston Project people. Years after I'd learned that, a man in California named Alan Wachtel, who had heard me mention my family's origins, was kind enough to go through microfilm of the records kept by the Galveston Project and send me copies of the relevant immigration documents, manifests of alien passengers arriving at the port of, Galis of Galveston. There it was in tiny longhand, the manifest of the SS Colm, arriving on October 5, 1907 from Bremen, listed my grandfather as Kusiel Trelinsky, a 31-year-old joiner, meaning carpenter, not someone who is almost certain to become a member of both Kiwanis and the Rotary, from a village that Wachtel eventually deciphered as Sokolcha, a place about 75 miles west of Kiev. When I read Eli Evans' book on the beach that day, Uncle Benny may have been the last survivor of my grandparents' generation, a man in his late 80s who spent a lot of time tending his tomatoes in the yard behind his little row house in a part of St. Joe that I always remember as looking as if it had gotten frozen in place around 1922. I sat up on the beach. Embarrassed, I said to Alice. Who is Jacob Schiff to be embarrassed by my uncle Benny Danovsky? That was the first line of a piece I wrote about the discovery. My research consisted partly of coming up with embarrassing facts about the ships, which did not prove terribly difficult. According to Stephen Birmingham's book, Our Crowd, for instance, Jacob Schiff had displayed on his office walls two of the largest checks he ever wrote, one of them for $62 million. In the piece, I remind my wife that the New York Post survived one battle of the New York tabloid wars because its owner, Dorothy Schiff, had finked on the other publishers in the New York Publishers Association and settled with the union separately. Since when did you become such a big defender of the New York Publishers Association, my wife said. My uncle Ben Danofsky never finked on anybody, I said. Acknowledging that my family in St. Joe had a certain local renown for stubbornness, I maintain in the piece that there was nevertheless nothing embarrassing about them. Unlike Jacob Schiff, I point out, my Uncle Benny had never consorted with robber barons like E.H. Harriman and would never have put a framed check on his wall. I did not go into the question of whether or not Uncle Benny ever actually had a checking account. When I saw the St. Joe people at a wedding in Kansas City, I told them that I was working on the piece and hoped to have it published somewhere before Uncle Benny's 19th birthday party. Don't mention his name, Uncle Benny's son said. The Russian army is still looking for him. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody. My name is Jim Petchy with the Wexner Center. On behalf of Director Sherry Gelden, we're glad to have Read Aloud back here. It was a good experiment last year, I think, and uh, we're glad to be your home away from home. A special shout out to Nancy Schindel. It's her birthday, a colleague of ours. When Donna said we could choose anything we wanted for this program, I opted for the book The Dive from Clausen's Pier by Ann Packer. I really can't tell you why I picked it up for the first time. It may be that I noticed there were many copies of it for sale at a famous discount bookstore that I frequent. Uh, but I picked it up and couldn't put it down. 
Ann Packer's published works are these. Um, she's not a prolific author, but I find her to be a very good one. Um, she published uh, short stories called Mendocino and Other Stories in the mid-90s. The Die from Clausen's Pier is her first novel. It's about five years old, um, a national bestseller. And just in the last week or two, her second novel, Songs Without Words, was published. And uh, if we have a few minutes, when I'm done with my selections, maybe I'll start this with you today. Let me share a synopsis of uh, Clausen's Pier with you so you understand a little bit uh, where it's going. Carrie Bell and Mike Mayer have been a couple forever. Dating at 14 and engaged after graduating from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, they have settled into a comfortable relationship. However, Carrie is beginning to struggle with feelings of doubt about their future. In the midst of her doubts, tragedy befalls Mike. At Carrie's and Mike's traditional Memorial Day picnic with friends, Mike dives from Clausen's Pier into water that is too low, breaking his neck and falling into a coma. An anxious Carrie diligently visits Mike in the hospital, praying with their friends and family that he will wake up, knowing that he will be a quadriplegic if he does survive. But when Mike does awaken, Carrie's initial relief is quickly replaced by nagging doubts. She avoids the attempts of her mother and of Jamie, her lifelong best friend, to reach out to her. She dreads the inevitable contact with the mayors, and she resents the accusing looks of Rooster, Mike's best friend, who senses her wavering commitment to Mike. Weary of her confused, hidden feelings, Carrie finally breaks up with Mike and runs off to New York in an attempt at self-discovery. Carrie's taste of new life in New York City leads her to places in her heart and mind that stimulate and thrill her in ways she never knew were possible. But Carrie finds she cannot easily leave behind her old life in Madison, nor can she escape from herself. I'll begin after the prologue, right after the accident at Clausen's Pier. When something terrible happens to someone else, people often use the word unbearable. Living through a child's death, a spouse's, enduring some other kind of permanent loss, it's unbearable. It's too awful to be born, and the person or people to whom it's happened take on a kind of horrible glow in your mind, because they are in fact bearing it or trying to, doing the thing that it's impossible to do. The glow can be blinding at first. It can be all you see. And although it diminishes as years pass, it never goes out entirely. So that late some night when you are wandering the back pathways of your mind, you may stop at the sudden sight of someone up ahead, signaling even now with a faint but terrible light. Mike's accident happened to Mike, not to me. But for a long time afterward, I felt some of that glow felt I was giving it off, so that even doing the most innocuous errand, filling my car with gas or buying toothpaste, I thought everyone around me must see I was in the middle of a crisis. Yet I didn't cry. The first days at the hospital were full of crying, Mike's parents crying, his brother and sister, and Rooster, maybe Rooster most of all. But I was dry-eyed. My mother and Jamie told me it was because I was numb, and I guess that was part of it, numb and terrified. 
When I looked at him, it was as if years had unwound and I'd just met him. And I couldn't stand not knowing what was going to happen. But there was something else, too. Everyone was treating me so carefully and solicitously that I felt, that I felt breakable, and yet I wasn't broken. Mike was broken, and I wasn't broken. He was separate from me, and that was shocking. He was in a coma. Thanks to the combination of drought and a newly banked up shoreline, the water in Clausen's reservoir had been three feet lower than usual. If he woke up, it would be to learn that he'd broken his neck. But he didn't wake up. Days went by, and then it was a week, 10 days, and he was still unconscious, lying in intensive care in a tiny room crowded with machines, more than I ever would have imagined. He was in traction, his shaven head held by tongs attached to weights, and because he had to be turned onto his stomach every few hours to avoid bed sores, his bed was a two-part contraption that allowed for this. A pair of giant ironing board-shaped things that could sandwich him and flip him. Visiting hours were 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., 10 minutes per hour, two people at a time. But it seemed we'd no sooner get in to see him than the nurses would ask us to leave. It was as if merely body now. He belonged to them. Near the nursing station, there was a small lounge, and that's where we mostly were, talking or not talking, looking at each other or not looking. There would be five of us or 10 or 20, a core group of family and close friends, plus Mike's co-workers stopping by after the bank had closed, the mayor's neighbors checking in, my mother arriving with bags of sandwiches. There was a rack of ancient magazines by the door, and we offered them to each other now and then just for something to do. I couldn't read, but whenever the single warped issue of Vogue came my way, I flipped through it, pausing each time at an article about a clothing designer in London. I'm not sure I ever noticed her name, but I can still remember the clothes. A fitted moss green velvet jacket, a silver dress with long belled sleeves, a wide loose sweater in deep purple mohair. I was getting through the evenings by sewing, a pair of cotton shorts or a summer dress every two or three days. And those exotic images from London kept appearing in my mind as I bent over my sewing machine, reminding me at once of the hospital and the world. The two-week mark came, and when I woke that morning, I thought of something one of the doctors had said early on, that each week he was unconscious, the prognosis got worse. Unresponsive was the word they used. And whenever I heard it, I thought of myself in the car on the way to Clausen's reservoir, not answering his questions. Two weeks was only one day more than 13 days, but it felt we'd turned a corner that shouldn't have been turned, and I couldn't get myself out of bed. I lay on my side. The bed sheets were gritty and soft with use. I hadn't changed them since the accident. I reached for my quilt, lying in a tangle down past my feet. I made it myself one summer during high school, a patchwork of four-inch squares in no particular order, though I'd limited myself to blues and purples, and the overall effect was nice. I'd read somewhere that quilt makers signed their work with a little deviation. So in one corner, I used a square cut from an old shirt of Mike's, white with black window pane check. I found that square now and arranged the quilt so it was near my face. He had to wake up. He had to. I couldn't stand to think of what a bitch I'd been at Clausen's Reservoir. 
What a bitch all spring. It was like a horrible equation. My bitchiness plus his fear of losing me equaled Mike in a coma. I knew as clearly as I knew anything that I'd driven him to dive to impress me. I squeezed my eyes shut and tried to remember when everything between us had been fine. February, January, Christmas? Maybe not even Christmas. He'd given me plain pearl earrings that were very pretty and exactly what I would have wanted just a year earlier. But I found them stodgy and obvious, and I felt dead inside. Not because of the earrings, but because of my disappointment in them. Do you like them, he said uneasily. I love them, I lied. It was June now. I had the day off work, and at last I got up and made coffee then started laying out the pattern for an off-white linen jacket I'd been planning to make, first ironing the crumpled tissue, then moving the pieces around on the length of fabric until I was satisfied. I pinned them and cut them out with my fiskers, then went back and did the notches, snip by snip. I chalked the pattern marks onto the fabric, and by late morning I was sitting at my Bernina, winding a bobbin, entranced by the fast whir of it, by the knowledge that for hours now I'd be at this machine, my foot on the pedal. I'd been sewing for 11 years, since my first home ec class in junior high when I'd made an A-line skirt and fallen in love. It was the inexorability of it that appealed to me, how a length of fabric became a group of cut-out pieces that gradually took on the shape of a garment. I loved everything about it, even the little snipped threads to be gathered and thrown away, the smell of an overheated iron, the scatter of pins at the end of the day. I loved how I got better and better, closer and closer with each thing I had made to achieving just what I had hoped. When the phone rang at 8.30 that evening, I'd taken a few breaks for iced cranberry juice, but mostly I'd sat there sewing. And the sound woke me from my work. Surprised how dark it had gotten, I pushed away from the table and turned on a light, blinking at the jacket parts that lay everywhere the slips of pattern and the pinked-off edges of seams. I was starving, my back and shoulders knotted and aching. It was Mrs. Mare. She asked how I was, told me she heard it might rain, and then cleared her throat and said she'd appreciate it if I'd stop by the next day. I love about this book is how Ann Packer takes things slowly. A, there isn't a lot of gimmickry to the book. It doesn't seem really anchored in a specific time or place. In the recent uh, New York uh, Times book pages, uh, they reviewed the new novel, Songs Without Words, and referred back, of course, to her first. I want to share a couple graphs here before I read another passage. Liesl Schillinger is the uh, reviewer. Packer writes sensitive, quietly distressing fiction about ordinary people waylaid by misfortunes great and small. Her 1994 collection, Mendocino and Other Stories, included 10 tales rinsed in loss. Her wrenching first novel, The Dive from Clausen's Pier, which appeared five years ago, deservedly became a bestseller. In uncannily true-to-life language, without exaggeration, at an unhurried pace, Packer told the story of Carrie Bell, a diffident 23-year-old Midwesterner, whose fiancé breaks his neck in a diving accident at a time when the couple's relationship, like the water level at Clausen's Reservoir, is dangerously low. 
Methodically and without judgment, Packer follows Carrie as she wrestles with guilt, avoidance, and defiance, trying to gauge her responsibilities to her now quadriplegic fiance, his family, her friends, and herself. How much do we owe the people we love, Carrie asks herself. Finding no answer, she flees to New York. What does it say about me that I'd leave, she asks her mother over the phone. Bad isn't the issue, her mother, a therapist, replies. You do what you do, not without consequences for other people, she concedes. But it's not very helpful to regard your choices as a series of right or wrong moves. Now this sentence, I think, just kind of sums it up about Packer and especially the book. The extraordinary, extraordinary authority of Packer's voice lies in her refusal to make heroes of the victims of mischance or villains out of the friends, lovers, and family members who sometimes failed them. And I think that makes for very good reading. My next passage from Clausen's Pier finds Carrie in New York, where she has taken up in an affair with an enigmatic man slightly older than herself named Kilroy. At this point in the story, she's debating a return to Madison, Wisconsin for a wedding. I needed something wonderful to wear to the wedding. I had in mind something quietly stunning, something to set me apart as different now, changed. For the next few nights, I lay awake late, dreaming up outfits. With Kilroy asleep beside me, I imagined a brown stretch lace t-shirt over a long brown taffeta skirt, a knee-leaked burgundy satin dress with a matching swing coat. I wanted something dark and rich for a Christmas time wedding, a gold peplum jacket over a paisley brocade skirt, a deep red wrap dress with a plunging V neckline. I'd need shoes in a bag. I'd need about $10,000. On Wednesday, I put on a pair of the side-zip black pants I'd made and a nice chenille sweater and went to Midtown, where I left the slow-moving crowds of shoppers on Fifth Avenue and entered Bergdorf Goodman. I just wanted to browse to see what was available. I'd been in plenty of department stores in my life, in Madison and Chicago, but never one like this, thick carpeted and deeply quiet, a museum of the expensive. I moved through accessories and perfume, circling the hushed and scented ground floor studying the exquisitely dressed saleswomen. There were few other customers. A pair of tweed-suited dowagers looked at gloves while a tall blonde couple in riding clothes examined a shiny wallet, talking softly in a foreign language. The escalator rose quietly. Upstairs, I wandered around past clothes hanging like art in a carefully lit tableau. I liked a stretchy gray pantsuit, then a midnight blue beaded sweater with silk embroidery on the cuffs. In another department, I found a deep purple top with a wide U-neck shown over a two-layered wrap skirt in purple and silver. A gorgeous copper dress hung nearby, sheer taffeta with a slinky brown underslip visible inside. A knee-length dress of green velvet beckoned me closer. It was a deep forest green that was almost black at certain angles. The velvet silky and deep, lush as at dense woods. The design was fitted and plain, with a round neck and a sculpted shape. A row of small satin buttons ran down the back, the same green as the velvet. There were satin cuffs, too, long and fastened by three more buttons. And hanging from one of these was a price tag that said $3,000. Would you like to try it on? A saleswoman asked, appearing out of nowhere. I followed her to an enormous dressing room with a chintz armchair, an adjustable three-way mirror, and lights dimmed to flatter. I took off my clothes and slid the dress on, the lining cool and silky going over my head. 
Just as I was wondering how I was going to button it up again, the saleswoman returned and did it for me, smoothing the velvet over my shoulders. When she was gone, I looked in the mirror. The dress fit perfectly, the curved seams answering my curves, the sleeves fitted but supple enough for movement, the satin cuffs riding my wrists like silk bracelets. Exquisite. I managed to unbutton enough of the buttons to get out of it, and then idly I turned it inside out and glanced at the lines of the seams. Do you need anything, the saleswoman called, and I righted the dress, then put on my clothes and went out, telling her with a sad smile that it was just too big in the shoulders. Dark green velvet. That's what I wanted. The pinch of my poverty gave me a suffocated feeling, and I took a deep breath, then slowly let it out again. It was still early December. I had time to find something. On the ground floor, I wandered around again, touching scarves, walking through the just-sprayed mists of hundred-dollar perfumes. In jewelry, I looked at strings of black pearls and intricate sculptural earrings. My little diamonds seem frail here from another time, another world. I wondered if Mike ever thought about it, if he guessed I was still wearing it. I wondered how he felt, knowing he'd see me in a few weeks. The dress, though, the dark green velvet dress up there in Bergdorf's. In a way, I felt I had a version of that dress in me, somewhere in there, possible. At 6th Avenue, I cut down to 57th Street and made my way to the fabric store I'd found in October. It was quarter to six, 15 minutes till closing. An older man watched from behind the cash register, an apron tied over his white shirt and his wide polyester tie. There were three dark green velvets, one cotton, one rayon, and one silk. And I chose the silk for its perfect piney color. I found a shimmering satin for the cuffs in just the right green, and I decided to go all out and get a china silk rather than acetate for the lining. At five to six, I sat down with a Vogue pattern book and within minutes had found almost what I was looking for, a plain fitted dress with a round neckline. Almost, but not quite. I looked up at the man standing with his arms crossed over his apron, ready to kick me out despite the three fabrics I'd put on the cutting, room, cutting table. Could I depart from the pattern Substitute buttons for the back zipper, find a way to design my own deep cuffs? I stood up and found the Vogue patterns, tracked the numbers until I located the right drawer, rolled it open, and riffled until I found the right pattern number, then my size. I carried the envelope to the cutting table and set it down. Then I opened my wallet and reached for my credit card. I like how Carrie Bell sews, and that's an integral part of her character, and I like at the end there when she wants to find her own way to have the dress that she desires. I often read it as she's trying to work with her own life, and I'm sure that's what Ann Packer wanted us to do, trying to fit the pieces and materials and patterns into something that was wearable and constant and ready to go. And that's what Carrie does through this book. I highly recommend it. Uh, time's running low. Again, her new novel is called Songs, Songs Without Words. And it's available at bookstores and I'm sure at libraries. And I invite you to read that too, as I will very soon. Thank you. you know, <laughs>